Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell for the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine School. So, we're in part three of a multi-part series on the poetics of St. Gregory of Nazianzus. In the first two podcasts, we talked about Gregory's poem, Ta Ametra, or On the Metered. In these first two sections that we talked about, Gregory gives us his first two reasons for writing poetry. The first reason, he says, is what I'm calling the ascetic reason, the reason of self-discipline, of being apprentice to the form of an art. And he says that this isn't just hard, good work, it's also self-discipline and almost spiritual discipline. He talks about how he has a greedy tongue that is reined in and disciplined by working on metrical form. In his second reason, he talks about then moving from the realm of self-discipline and apprenticeship to a craft to giving that craft to others and using that craft to talk about the most important things, virtue, discipline, law. And he also talks about a desire which we might see as a little embarrassing to talk about. He says he wants to write popular things. And I think that any poet is kind of kidding themselves if they don't hope that their poetry can be popularly enjoyed. Not necessarily enjoyed by those who only enjoy other popular things. Right now there's a big uh, kerfuffle about the new Dan Brown novel, and this might be dated by the time uh, this goes online. But one of the things that is frustrating, I think, about a writer like Dan Brown is he's so obviously not very good as a writer, but so incredibly popular. So I think the word popular is difficult for us these days. How can one want to write to enrich, to instruct and delight a popular audience without falling into the trap of writing drivel? Well, one of the things I said in our last podcast is by following chronologically Gregory's first two reasons, we apprentice ourselves to a craft, we discipline ourselves and become masters of a craft or work on mastery of a craft before we ever turn to putting our work out there. Now, when Gregory talks about putting his work out there, he primarily talks about youths and whoever takes a deep delight in words. So he's writing for youths, and I think in the context, the critics think at least, I'm, I'm basing this on what other writers have said about Gregory, these youths would probably be primarily youths in the church context. Gregory was, after all, a bishop from time to time and lived in Christian communities in the Middle East. So we have this ascetic function of poetry, self-discipline, even spiritual discipline, uh, apprenticeship to a craft. Then we have the catechetical or didactic function, using a craft that we have mastered to teach and to share with others popularly. But then we have this third reason that gets, maybe we might even say, more embarrassing or more self-revealing. Gregory writes this, Third, and if this just sounds petty, let me know, I write to win the current battle which we wage with words, where each side seeks through books linguistic victory. I speak of language that partakes in beauty, though supremest beauty is through contemplation reached. Among the worldly wise, the sophists, we produce our faithful plays. Now let us act the lion's part. Gregory loves using 
animal metaphors, and we have a lion here. In the fourth reason, we're going to have a swan show up. So he said, I write to discipline myself, to apprentice myself to this difficult craft of verse. Then he says, I write to sweeten difficult topics for young people and for those who take a deep delight in words. He says, third, I write to win the current battle which we wage with words. Now, Gregory's cultural context is important for understanding what he means here. Gregory is living in a culture, the 380s AD, that's not so unlike our own when it comes to a multicultural, pluralistic world. In the 380s and really throughout the 300s from 313 on, once Christianity is legalized in the Edict of Milan, Christianity and Christian writers are living in a Roman Empire where there are many religions and even many groups who call themselves Christians. And one of the things that Gregory was involved in in 380 and 381 was the Ecumenical Council of Constantinople, which was a meeting of all the church leaders from the known world getting together and saying, what do we do with groups who call themselves Christians but don't profess that Jesus is God and don't profess that the Holy Spirit is God? And at the Council of Constantinople, we have what we now call the Nicene Creed. It might be more accurate to call the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, which is written that affirms that to be a Christian, to be part of the Christian church, one must affirm that Jesus is God and that the Holy Spirit is God. In fact, this language of three persons and one essence as God, the triune God, Gregory helped hammer out that language. So when he says, I write to win the current battle which we wage with words, he's talking about both intramural, perhaps, conflicts within the church, conflicts with other religious groups that might be pseudo-Christian or seem like they're Christian but not actually have orthodox doctrine, but also then he's thinking about the battle that even those who are believers, in, even in something like monotheism, have with those who believe in polytheism. Gregory, in the 360s, lived through the age of Julian the Apostate, who, after a series of Christian emperors being in charge of the Roman Empire, he came to power and said, never mind, we're going back to paganism, and started persecuting Christians again, and wanted to make the official religion of the Roman Empire Roman pagan polytheism again. So the current battle which we wage with words is in fact not too different than the kind of battles which we have with words maybe we might call this the wars in the in the public squares that we have these days where we argue about things like is there a god which account of god from which religion or even which denomination is a correct account of god how do we interpret the bible is the bible even worth uh placing uh a high value on as inspired all these questions Gregory is dealing with. So he starts with the ascetic function. I want to discipline myself with verse, with form. Then the catechetical or didactic function. I want to teach. Now he's saying, I want to use my poetry to speak for Christianity, to speak for my view of the world, often uh, Gregory's particular way of talking about Christianity has been called Cappadocian humanism. It has a particular anthropology as well as a theological anthropology, we have called it, that sees man as created by God in the image of God with eternal value 
and eternal significance, called to not just worship or glorify God, but called to union with God and all other men in and through Christ. So this Cappadocian humanism, this very high view of the human that Gregory has, he wants to use his poetry to speak for that in the public square. Not just to youths, not just to those who are learning within the church or within his family or community, but to everyone. So I think it's very fascinating that Gregory's poetic starts with self-discipline, moves out to the local church community, and then moves out to the broader cultural community of his world. It's like these expanding spheres of influence that poetry has. And I think that the spheres are often, sadly, in our day, reversed. I think too often, especially with the ease of things like social media or online publishing, when writers, I'll use myself as, as an example, when young writers want to start writing, they put their ideas out there for anyone and everyone right away online. And then they slowly realize that maybe they actually need some apprenticeship in the craft of writing. Some people never learn that. And I think that's how you get a world where we have people who are paid to professionally comment on public goings-on who are not only not wordsmiths, but who embarrass whatever side they speak for through their foolishness. And sometimes through their rank charlatanry. So often these days when I read about people who have a wide readership online, it turns out that they have ghostwriters that write all their things for them. Gregory is so the opposite of that view of writing. One must first discipline oneself and become apprentice to a craft oneself before one ever thinks about putting one's ideas out into the public square. And he even says, Put it out into the square for those who already love words, for the, for, for the young people or for one's fellow believers. Do that first before you ever put your words out there for everyone. Gregory is very guarded, partly because he knows as an orator what it's like to stand up in a city square or stand up in a church in a metropolis like Constantinople and speak boldly his ideas. Gregory had death threats against his life. Gregory had people in audiences who would uh, yell at him, and probably both Christians and non-Christians sometimes. So Gregory knew the viciousness of the public square. But he says, look, I know it sounds petty, but I want to win there too. Gregory is both disciplined enough and wise enough to know he needs to work on himself and then work on himself within his own community before he goes out into the world. But he wants to get there. He wants to get out into the world. That's something I love about Gregory. He's vulnerable. He's honest. People often talk about Augustine, uh, who writes his confessions around 400 AD, as one of the first writers who exhibits a modern consciousness, who, who doubts himself, who questions his identity. Oh, but that's Gregory so much. And in the 380s, he proves that. And in his orations before the 380s, he proves that too. Gregory also has self-doubt. Gregory also has great ambition. And he puts it on the page here in a way that tries to show us, this is in one sense his employing his second reason, he's trying to show us through poetry and iambic hexameter what the safe and responsible way to go about writing poetry is. 
even as he himself knows that he wants to go against his own device and just blather out there in public. Finally, and I want to spend just the last couple of minutes talking about this fourth reason, because I think it's a corrective to the expanding outward of these first three reasons. His fourth reason, he says this, Fourth, when winter wind brings sickness, struggle, death, my poems confront me, my poems comfort me, swan-like old man, they lull me with their wings, embolden me like woodwind hymns, no threnodies, but songs to lead me ever on. We've gone from the discipline of the self to teaching one's community to battling out there in the public square. We use the term culture wars today, though that sometimes has a uh, negative connotation, but I think Gregory wouldn't be above talking about culture wars. Just when we get to that huge public square, all of a sudden, and I'm remembering our discussion of Longfellow here a few podcasts ago, the specter of death confronts him. Remember in Longfellow, he says, the cataract of death is thundering from the heights. He hears death coming. And it's awesome here how Gregory is checked by the remembrance of death. He says, fourth, when winter wind brings sickness, struggle, death. My poems comfort me. And now we're back to a view of poetry that actually hasn't been mentioned yet, but is very, well, the Romantics talked about this a lot, and even the fireside poets, these post-Romantic American writers, they also talk about this. Poetry comforts us in times of trouble. Songs do that. I think pop songs do that for a lot of people today. But poetry has a much longer history of comforting those who are sad. But this isn't just a temporary sadness. This isn't a youthful sadness of, of heartbrokenness over romance. This is sadness in the face of death. This is winter wind bringing sickness, sorrow, death. My poems comfort me, swan-like old man. They lull me with their wings, embolden me like woodwind hymns. No threnodies, but songs to lead me ever on. I mentioned in the last podcast that Gregory gives very vivid and sometimes surprising images for what poetry does. He talks about lulling with wings. We have this idea of a swan-like old man. Of course, I think we're supposed to think of the idea of a swan song here. This is poetry in the face of the end. Poetry lulls me with their wings. Wings beat in a regular pattern. And poetry, especially this poetry that Gregory is writing, is beating in a regular pattern. But it's not just comfort. It's not just lulling. At the end here, there's almost a rallying. He says, embolden me like woodwind hymns. No threnodies. What's a threnody? A threnody is a classical subgenre of poetry that's a song of mourning over death. A threnody can often get very bleak. But he doesn't want a threnody. He wants a song to lead him onward through death. Poetry, poetry that can discipline the living poet, that can instruct the young and the lover of words. Poetry that can even fight great battles, philosophical and theological. Poetry is then employed to, as, uh, as Milton might say, uh, or Spencer might say, a far unfitter task. All right, poetry, you helped me with my own self-discipline needs. 
You helped teach people. You helped fight battles. Now help me through death. And there's a boldness here where Gregory says, it can. Songs can lead me ever on past death. And because he's a Cappadocian humanist, because he's a poet who believes that the human soul is immortal, he knows that poetry can help him face that final, most difficult thing, which is the passing beyond death into immortality. And he's confident. But also, he takes it seriously. He's not reckless in the face of death. He's not audacious, but he thinks poetry can help. So what is this Cappadocian humanist poetics? What is this Gregorian poetics that we've been talking about? It's formal. It takes form incredibly seriously as primary to what it means to be a poet, but it doesn't leave out didactic functions. Poetry can teach, and as we said, the great poems. Think Shakespeare's tragedies. Think Milton's Paradise Lost. Think Dante's Divine Comedy. Of course, all of these come after Gregory, but before Gregory, things like uh, Proba's Virgilian Kento, Juvencus's Liber Evangeliorum that retells the gospel story, uh, and more majorly even Virgil's Aeneid, Homer's Iliad. These both delight and they teach. And they are statements of worldview. They are statements of belief both theological and cultural and philosophical in the public sphere but also the specter of death is in every great poem i think and the truly great poem and i think the truly great poetics accounts for death and if poetry is as great as these poets have believed it is poetry too may find a place in death and past death Maybe. This is Dr. Timothy Bartell. This has been the Poetry Corner podcast for St. Constantine.